Hello, Will. Uh, welcome back to another episode of M Light. My name is Lou Dangs Allen, and I'm an immigration lawyer in Toronto. And my name is Will Tao, and I'm an immigration lawyer here in Burnaby, British Columbia. So today, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm actually moving around, and I'd like to acknowledge that I'm in the traditional lands of many peoples, the Mawekma, Mawak, and the Yokuts in the San Joaquin Valley in California. I'm still home in Burnaby, uh, at the home of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Kai-Kat Nations. LJ, it's been another week of, I would say, stress uh, for many in our network because of the ongoing and emerging situation in Afghanistan. Tell us a little more about what we know and why we're doing this episode. Well, I'm not going to pretend to be an episode in geopolitical situations, but what is known, and it's been going around in the news uh, at the moment, is the emerging humanitarian crisis in Central Asia, particularly in Afghanistan and the aftermath of the U.S. withdrawal in that country. And uh, I think, Will, a lot of this, you know, humanitarian crisis has to deal with, has to do with the uh, government's lack of clarity with respect to its refugee program. Absolutely. And, you know, as the Taliban took power, we saw and we've been seeing images of uh, individuals trying to leave leave uh, Afghanistan for safety and security for refuge and in, in, in Canada being one of the countries that uh, was very active with the allied forces in Afghanistan and 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 there are a lot of both Afghan Canadians but Afghans with a deep connection uh, to Canada uh, and also those who who just need to flee because of their their polit- political situation right now so we wanted to briefly, before we start this episode and, and invite our two guests, talk about what we know so far about what IRCC is implementing. So, LJ, what we know so far is that they have allocated 20,000 spots, and we know that there are two streams, one a special program for Afghans who assisted Canada, and another, the details of which have not yet been clarified, but a special program for vulnerable Afghans. Maybe LJ can quickly talk about that first program, and I'll talk about the second. The first program is, as we know, Canada had a very massive footprint as part of the NATO coalition that uh, made massive interventions 20 years ago in Afghanistan. And what happened is obviously I have a lot of translators, interpreters, and generally the civilian population who supported a massive military effort in that region. And as a result, uh, right now, when allied forces, well, Canada has been gone from Afghanistan for close to a decade now, and the U.S. now pulling out, the consequences is that a lot of these folks who helped the allied forces of Canada directly are being hunted down, uh, sadly. And uh, what this program aims to achieve is to provide a safe haven for those who have directly assisted Canadian forces and the Canadian government in its time during the campaign in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And the second program for assisting vulnerable Afghans is a program that will be focused on vulnerable Afghan nationals that are outside of Afghanistan, including women leaders, human rights advocates, LGBT, one individuals, journalists, immediate family members of individuals in Canada, and extended family members of previously resettled interpreters. So 
It's a little bit interesting because, you know, one of them says it's focused on vulnerable Afghan nationals outside of Afghanistan. And then there's details that say that you don't actually have to be currently in Afghanistan for your application to be processed. Unfortunately, we don't know what this means for those who are actually in Afghanistan right now, especially in Kabul. And and many of the images we've been seeing, the stark images of individuals Mm -hmm. waiting to get on planes to go to the various countries that are accepting. So... Yeah, we wanted to have an episode to talk a little bit about what's going on in Afghanistan, not only just what's going on now, but also with G5 sponsorships and how we really got to this place in time. So, LJ, maybe you want to introduce our guest, our first guest uh, for today's special episode. Absolutely. Thanks. And our first guest, and she agreed, she's a head of a group of five sponsorship here in in Toronto. And basically, they're trying to sponsor uh, Afghans who are in a third country. I'm not going to go into the details. Absolutely not during this time. I'll let her talk about her story, her interaction with the government, her experience in the program as it is right now in the time of crisis. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Wahida Eklis-Smith. Hello, Wahida. How are you doing? Good, thank you. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. Would you like to introduce yourself? Just a brief bio. Yes, I'm Wahida Akla-Smith and I am an employment lawyer in Toronto and I am of Afghani-Canadian descent. Fantastic. So let's get right to it, Wahida. So I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about the situation in the region, specifically in Afghanistan, maybe in Tajikistan, where, you know, that that particular region, what are the challenges that are being faced by folks like you who are in a group of five sponsorship group? So part of the challenges is obviously distance in that we are very, very far from being able to actually keep an eye on what the situation is as it's developing. It's, it's, Everyone's seen the news about how dire the refugee situation is. In my particular case, I have family who are refugees in Tajikistan who left Afghanistan about a year and a half ago, and they've been stuck there since. So I want to talk about, you know, the, the pain points essentially for the G5 program. In your experience thus far, what would be the glaring, what would be the top three pain points that you can identify at this point? Well, I mean, the lack of resources that are available to the refugees there in order to gather all their documents. For example, in a country like Tajikistan, where the refugees are actually not allowed to live in the capital city, but all the resources that they need to access in order to get the application package together are in the capital city. So it's a great cost for the refugees to to travel to these cities to get the documents done. There's cost and and so forth, but also the fact that it's it's time consuming, and they don't know and there's not very much help available to them. So it's the the sheer amount of documents that are required and variations from the government. So that's one of them. The other is, of course, the the cost. It's expensive for them to do that. And refugees such as my family are entirely dependent on funding from family to send them that way. There is no external funding. There's no refugee allowance or anything like that. So the G5 is while we are, we've accumulated funding for them to c- come here, we're also sending them funds there to live rent money, food money, and so forth. So uh, accelerating that process would obviously be a great help to them and to us. 
And then the third point is the fact that there's a, a huge lack of communication. Once the documents are submitted to the government, there's no, there's no way to follow up as to what's happening with this vetted, completed application. And I want to contrast that with the experience of folks currently on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, Will, I want to loop you back in. Does that sound familiar? The lack of resources, uh, for example, access to Adobe PDF reader in order to save files. We've been hearing it in the news. Uh, what are your thoughts in regards to access and difficulty and asking people, you know, in, in dire circumstances to get these documents done? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a common challenge, especially in the middle of a humanitarian crisis to have access points to the type of, you know, wireless internet services and, and, and technology needed to put together these packages and materials. And that's, uh, you know, we've already heard and we've been inundated with requests from uh, individuals who, who are seeking assistance who are currently in Afghanistan. And, and that's one thing they're mentioning. It's like, I can't even get myself in front of a, you know, computer securely right now. This is, I've sent this email just in a rush from, you know, where I can, uh, how can I even sit with you to work on these processes? So, I mean, technology does have its shortcomings in a sense too, especially when you're in an economic, or sorry, um, in a uh, major humanitarian crisis. I actually had a question, maybe if I can bring it to you, Wahida, when it comes to the, the G5 program, I mean, what do you think the, you know, there, there's obviously the ongoing crisis in Afghanistan right now, but there's also the G5 issues that have been brewing for, for some time now. How, as someone who's currently in the process and who has family in the G5 pro process, how do you think the government should balance both of those sort of parallel, I would say, needs to, to bring people out to safety? I mean, I'm obviously sympathetic and, and aware of, of the problems that the people in Afghanistan right now are facing. I still have family there from both sides of both my parents. So obviously I want them help. But at the same time, the, the application, the G5 applicants have also started the process. And in terms of how the government can balance it, I understand the need for triage of, of an immediate situation. But at the same time, you have, you know, the people whose applications have been submitted thoroughly who are funded. They're at no risk to the government. They're at no cost to the government they're ready to go. They're ready to come rather to, to Canada. So I think they can move in parallel tracks and numbers that have been committed to come there. It's, it's, they're not taking anybody's spot. They're not taking any humanitarian needs spot. They're already, again, parallel tracks. I think it's possible. Wonderful. And, and let's say that they do implement, and there's been some talk in, in, in the international circles of, of the creation of a safe alleyway uh, from Afghanistan to Tajikistan. And let us say Canada expands G5 in, in the region. What kind of changes would you like to see to the way that G5 worked that maybe wasn't there in, in your particular case that, that would have made the, thing, the, the process much smoother? Well, perhaps having dedicated resources for those who need help in terms of the equivalent of a, of a notary public who who's aware of the needs of, of refugees to help them fill out the documents, having a, a couple of people in charge to liaise between the refugees who need to complete these documents on their end and what the government needs on, on this end. Right now, it's quite informal um, as to who can help you. And 
you might take you three or four different people to, to help you fill out these documents. So having a few people who, who, who are perhaps linked to the Canadian government somehow, whether it's at a, at a high commission, at a consulate, and understand what the needs of the G5 applicants are, and then help them complete those documents. Just having a, a dedicated, it doesn't have to be full time. It can just be a dedicated people who are aware of the system. So I think that would that would help. And LJ, we, we know from other areas of immigration that dedicated service channels, for example, for employers is, is a very common thing. So this is not something, a, a brand new concept. It would really be appointing no. a point person and making them accessible. Absolutely. Exactly. And the other point that I wanted to highlight in Wahida, I wanted to tease it out her in her first response was, you know, having a response and having channels of communication. So Wahida, could you talk to us about uh, your attempts to follow up on the submissions that you've made? So the submissions, the G5 or the complete submission was sent to the IRCC, the Immigration Refugee Citizenship Canada. Canada, forgive me for, for uh, that, um, but that, but the IRCC, they received the application, or rather we sent the application to them electronically on May 12th. Since then, there hasn't even been an acknowledgement of receipt. There's been no um, assignment of a reference number or a file number. There's really been nothing. So since then, an attempt to accelerate it and also to help IRCC appreciate the devolving situation in, in Afghanistan and Tajikistan, we sent a supplementary application or supplementary documents to them. Still no acknowledgement. I have reached out as the head of the G5. I've reached out to my MP in my writing, as well as my mother, who's one of the members, to her MP in her writing. And they're, they're trying their best to help locate at, or get some answers, but they keep asking, what is the reference number for this application? And the IRCC has yet to provide that. So we're stuck in a, in a limbo where it's not possible to get answers to our follow-up because there's no reference number to, to send the IRCC. So, it, so three and a half months later, we don't even have an acknowledgement of receipt, let alone any update on the progress. Okay, so I'd like to end on that note with respect to your experience with the current follow-ups and the current communication lines. And I'd like to actually contrast that with your personal experience uh, from way back when. So Wahida, would you like to talk about your experiences, say, years ago? So as I mentioned at the outset, I'm, you know, Afghani Canadian. My family, we came to Canada in the late 80s, early 90s as what was then called landed immigrant. We came uh, from India where we had been living as refugees and we had been living as refugees in India due to the Soviet war in Afghanistan. I was a child and the process I remember because I, my parents helped you know, make sure we learned English, I was their interpreter. And so when they applied to, as refugees to come directly, they were able to apply to different governments or rather countries. Um, they applied to Canada, they applied to Australia, and it was straightforward enough where they could do it with minimal language skills. And then I helped them with the, with the process of interviews, medical tests, you know, they seven or eight years old and they bought their plane tickets, 
And we were in Canada, you know, six months or eight months afterwards. And it was straightforward. And we came here as landed immigrants and, and here we are. And, but, but again, it was faster. It was, it was more transparent. And it was something that an eight-year-old child could navigate versus, versus what, what my, my family is going through right now. In terms of the complexity of the process, there are certainly a lot of points for improvement, especially in the time of crisis. Wahida, any final thoughts as regards to how to simplify this? Perhaps to secure a repository of some way of uploading documents themselves or, or having a streamlined form and, and having, having it simple where perhaps if, if for example, that they're UNHCR refugees, which my family is, they've already been vetted to some extent mm-hmm. as genuine refugees, accelerate that process perhaps. But the very least is communication. Communicate with the applicants, acknowledge their receipt, generate an automatic reference number wow. when, a, when an application, a G5 application has been uploaded. Anything that would at least show that, yes, IRCC has received the documents. Anything to simplify it. I think it's important to note, LJ, that what Wahid is recommending and the steps, you know, they are in immigration. They are in different processes. It just seems to be that the emphasis or the where these are being implemented are, are in other categories, such as economic immigration That's right. or you know, with, with certain postgraduate work permits, but you're, you're leaving, you know, it out for, for others. And, and in fact, those who probably need it the most who need that assurance at this time. Um, mm. So you know, I, I also encourage IRCC to, to step up on communication at this really important time, something that we know is also impacting the new instructions that they've provided and the uncertainties around what these 20,000 spots will look like. As a final question, Wahida, and maybe if I may ask, what would you say to others who are looking to get involved with the G5 right now? And I know with the ongoing situation in Afghanistan, there likely will be the need for more government-assisted you know, refugees and more G5 sponsors. What would you say to others who are seeking to learn more about the process? Well, I mean, organize yourselves. Have at least five people who are, who, who are you know, able to uh, do this application and, and get the help here. Get, you know hiring the right person as as part of the the process to help I, i'm i'm a lawyer and i needed the help with the application package so and that i mean that in itself i think speaks to the process of, of how complicated it is but get the help get the help in order to to make sure that once the ircc does look at it they're able to process it quicker rather than sending back for for changes and and things like that but one of the concerns right now that in terms of the applications that people are having right now is internet access. I know you mentioned, you know, perhaps people cannot get in front of a computer or secure line. Internet itself was was completely shut down over the last few days, where if the cell towers are are destroyed, there's there's nothing there. So Kabul still had some internet, but major capital cities in the other provinces just outside did not. And so you can't get an application in when you have no internet. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to point that out that that's the situation in the last two days. Absolutely. 
lines of communications are so important. And on that note, Wahida, we really appreciate you coming in today to join us to talk about your G5 sponsorship experience. And I hope it would uh, enlighten and uh, guide a lot of people who listened in, in perhaps inspiring, perhaps getting some, taking some notes from your experiences. And uh, we'd like to thank you very much for you know sharing your, your thoughts and your experience on this. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much, Lou Anwell. Thank you. And we're praying for the safety and security of your family during this time as well. It's, Absolutely. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you both. Thank you, Wahida. Wow. I, I learned a lot from Wahida. And, and thank you, LJ, for inviting someone who is in the process of a G5 sponsorship and you know the head of a sponsor group. I think it's really good to get the, the client perspective and the client angle on this. Absolutely. And it's interesting that she has some notes to compare with the G5, her own personal experience when they moved to Canada. Uh, and I think that really sort of gives a, you know, a, a fresh context to uh, our discussions in terms of framing how the process should be imagined and worked out in the coming, coming months, essentially, since we really need to step up and move really quickly, you know, in this unfolding humanitarian crisis. Absolutely. Well, I'm really happy to talk to our next guest. And this next guest has been really busy the last few days, uh, you know, constantly requested in media because of her experiences. Hadia Samim has experience working in the public and private sectors, managing programs in public affairs, impact and settlement and integration. So directly with the Afghan community in Canada. She has also worked with the World Bank Group, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and UNICEF to coordinate complex emergency relief efforts and medical operations in conflict zones. So exactly what we're going through right now. And she's also been involved in various Canadian federal initiatives to meet the government's efforts in facilitating the arrival of immigrants, providing protection to refugees and offering programs to help newcomers settle in Canada. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Hadia Samim, and I look forward to asking her questions about what is going on on the ground in Afghanistan. Hadia, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking your time out. Hi, Will, and hi, Lou. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Hadia, we want to start with uh, uh, something I know that's very, very close to you, uh, you know, with what's going on in Afghanistan, the emerging crisis. How are women and children doing at this time? And what are your fears uh, for them with the current situation in Afghanistan? I mean, as we all know, the current situation is an absolute chaos. Afghans on the ground and around the world are deeply disturbed, we're numbed, afraid, filled with uncertainty. And there's a lot of sense of hopelessness and helplessness, especially amongst the diaspora communities around the world. Uh, we're seeing a lot of images and videos of people on the ground trying to leave the country. We're witnessing atrocities being committed by the Taliban against civilians. We're seeing people on the streets with no food, no water, no shelter, and other basic necessities. We're seeing people falling down from airplanes and hearing vulnerable populations uh, and minority groups really in fear of losing their loved ones or their lives. You know, I think it's it's important to note that while all civilians, all people in Afghanistan uh, were deeply concerned about, I think in particularly it's the women and it's the children and minority groups. As we know, in their last regime, the Taliban committed a lot of atrocities, particularly against women and girls. They were banned from every realm of um, social, political, and economic lives. Women were not allowed to go to school. They were not allowed to go work. They were not allowed to participate in politics. And they were forced to wear things like the burqa and be accompanied by their male counterparts a lot. 
at all times, especially when they were stepping out of the house. And then in terms of religious and ethnic minorities, they were always harassed. They were discriminated against and were always, uh, they were not able to exercise their basic human rights. Since 2001, after the fall of uh, the Taliban regime, women and girls had made a lot of progress. Generally speaking, women's rights had increased. Girls were able to attend universities and colleges, and they were able to work and hold positions of leadership, although symbolic, but the general um, consensus is that things were getting really good. So now with the Taliban taking control, that progress um, is definitely going to be diminished, um, erased. So once again, girls and women are not going to be able to go to school and um, you know, exercise their civil and political rights. They will be forced to wear the burqas. I think there's a lot of concerns around younger um, girls uh, being forced into marriages. And of course, there's always also a deep concern for religious and ethnic minorities who are at risk of being harassed and discriminated by the Taliban. Mm-hmm. I actually just had a consultation yesterday. I don't know if I told you this, LJ, with a individual trying to get a family friend out of Afghanistan. And it was for that very same reason that she's a, a, a young girl and with her parents very politically tied there, that they would be a target for the Taliban, possibly in a forced marriage situation. So this is a very real fear that is running among the, the population. How do you you know, all the countries we've heard in the news and we've seen photos of planes and, and we've been hearing about different countries and their efforts. And of course, you know, within every context, there's things that have, the governments have done right and things the governments could improve on. How would you assess overall the Canadian government's efforts so far, the 20,000 that they propose to assist? What do you think about their announcements and, and what do you hope to see? I mean, first of all, I would like to thank the Canadian government for expanding its humanitarian efforts to resettle 20,000 Afghan refugees. While it's a great first step, there are a lot of concerns that I'm hearing from people on the ground, as well as people working in the fields here in Canada, including settlement organizations. I've been hearing that there are in- the instructions for eligibility. They're very unclear. The application process is not clear. I've heard that many Afghans have emailed IRCC and are waiting for, you know, weeks and days and they've not had any any responses. In addition to that, I'm also hearing on the ground that with the closure of the Canadian embassy, some people have made private offices and are charging Afghans quite a lot of money with big promises. This is definitely a matter of concern. I feel like, you know, I think we can definitely do better in terms of ensuring that when we have an an announcement like that, that we take responsibility that it's executed properly and we have a proper strategy. And yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, just as a note, it's been, I think, five or six days now since the government announced that they would have uh, special measures for vulnerable Afghans, but those instructions are not online yet. And even this morning among immigration lawyers, we saw this mystery document that appeared to be at first glance a government instruction that ended up being just, I think, some sort of good Samaritan trying to put together a instruction guide, but, you know, with such details that the government themselves has not endorsed. So, you know, there needs to be a little bit more speed, I believe, in in trying to get these these instructions out so that 
there is not not the exploitation and, and miscommunication between groups. I think so too. Like I've I've heard a lot of people, you know, even myself, who I'm not directly doing fieldwork right now, I've been contacted by friends and family who are in Afghanistan, you know, letting me know, hey, we heard that the Canadian government is accepting 20,000 refugees. Am I included? Where do I go? What is the website? Like, where can I get more information? And I feel like this is our responsibility, our government's responsibility to ensure that we have proper communication and we're addressing these questions as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. How do you propose that we better coordinate the efforts between the various stakeholders? Because right now, what I'm seeing on the ground is a disconnect oftentimes with these well-resourced and well-politically connected organizations wanting to help but also the community itself with very good ideas on the ground knowledge, but lacking some of that political capital to get to the decision makers. So, so then there becomes this frantic, everyone trying to do something, but not necessarily speaking to each other. How do you recommend that Canada better coordinates its resettlement efforts at this time? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are a number of things we can do in Canada to ensure our efforts are coordinated and, of course, to improve the resettlement efforts altogether. Some of the things that I've heard and I feel like might be of good use are, one, uh, identifying a task force specifically for resettlement and integration efforts here in the country to ensure that, like I mentioned, our communication is clear in terms of eligibility, in terms of application process, and of course, ensuring timely responses to queries. Number two, I think coordinating, like you mentioned, our efforts across sectors is really important. And one way that we can do is by pooling in our resources that we're pooling in our resources to ensure that we're not duplicating efforts. Generally speaking, the issue of settlement integration is solely left on the shoulders of non-profit organization who often lack funding capacity and are also competing for grants based on their performance the previous years. So I think it's really important that we increase the funding of non-for-profit organizations who are doing settlement work, as well as ensure that we emphasize on applying a different approach to improve our settlement efforts. One one approach that I'm personally proponent of is called the collective impact approach, which essentially advocates for bringing together both the private and the public sectors, and of course, academics, faith-based communities, law enforcement, and other organizations or communities to come together, tackle the issues, address the gaps, and ensure that we're not working in isolation. And as a result, not duplicate our efforts uh, because working in isolation is burdensome and it's not sustainable. Oh, that's a really good list of, you know, actionable items that can be immediately put to uh, the ground. Now, I'm actually interested in your thoughts on something that I overheard on uh, Power and Politics, a show that's uh, basically on the CBC News. Foreign Minister Mark Garneau appeared and he was responding to a question on what, you know, they would wish that they could change in terms of how the government responded to this looming humanitarian crisis. And he thought that the government response does not need adjustment. Well, what are your thoughts in regards to that comment? I definitely think that we would, we do need to 
change our strategy. We have a lot of work to do. And I think it's it's our government's responsibility to make sure that we in, in disaster situation, not just in terms of Afghanistan, but all you know across the globe, that when situations, when crises like this happen, that we have a proper evacuation plan. And we're also ensuring that our efforts are protecting the vulnerable populations, as well as our you know, settlement and integration efforts are robust. And we're not left wondering, you know, basic information or basic communication stuff that we can easily have access to. So from my opinion, I think we can definitely do better and we can definitely adjust and learn from, you know, sort of what we have been seeing part of our execution plan in the last couple of days. I would just add, LJ, that even the instructions that were posted now, I mean, they, they talked about immediate family members and extended family members, which through the pandemic, as we know, and travel restrictions have adopted definitions. But for those who do not study the law or study those wordings on other websites, they would not know. So that itself is a lack of clarity. And then you have the whole issue of whether or not you actually have to be outside of Afghanistan and, and seek refugee recognition before you're able to utilize these measures. And, and, and unfortunately, that the first stream they opened up forced several individuals who were outside of Afghanistan to actually return back to Afghanistan to try and seek seek that the support of Canada for, for, for being someone who was formerly, you know, assisting the military and, and part of the embassy. I know Canada on, on a more positive note has assisted the Gurkhas with the Gurkhas, is it called the Gurkhas? Correct. Yeah, who protected the embassy. So it seems to me like there is still, they're still trying to figure out and, and, and fine tune what that is. If you were to give a recommendation at this stage, Hadia, you know, there are a lot of individuals who are outside of Afghanistan right now awaiting, as, as our earlier guest talked about, G5 sponsorships. They've already been recognized refugees. They've been delayed for several years in countries such as Tajikistan. But then you also have individuals who are in um, war zone right now and who want to leave and who, who, who want to get on planes. I know it's a difficult question, but how do you balance that? What do you think should be done? I think there's, I, I know that the government is sort of working in the background right now and trying to you know, ensure that our, we expand our current strategy that we have. But I think, you know, I think the first thing when it comes to crisis like this is uh, we have to ensure that we're protecting people and we're not being selective. I think lives are lives at the end of the day. So if, you know, if we're categorizing people based on their citizenship or based on their religious or ethnic beliefs, um, I think we're missing out. I think a lot of people in Afghanistan right now are vulnerable and we need to expand our current uh, criteria of eligibility for the resettlement program. So I think, you know, in terms of my recommendation, yeah, we definitely need to expand our uh, criteria as well as we need to expand our numbers. I really believe that, you know, there's a lot of people in Afghanistan right now uh, being threatened and their lives are in danger. And Canadian government can definitely do better in allowing or expanding uh, the 20,000 Afghan refugees that they've uh, committed to resettling. How do you, how, how comfortable are you talking about the implications of the elections on this? To be quite honest, I was going to keep it super brief. You know, I, and I don't have that much knowledge about it too. So 
for me it was more so like yes the government has received some criticism not some they have received criticism but at the same time you know i think at the end of the day because we can't do much about it right now i think it's our responsibility as citizens to ensure that we go vote during the election mm -hmm. and we hold our government responsible in terms of ensuring that all right, Hadiya, thanks for that. And I'm also curious to solicit your thoughts about, you know, the government holding elections in the middle of a, you know, an unraveling situation over in Afghanistan, a humanitarian crisis that we've not seen in, in quite a while, actually. And, you know, from my perspective, just in recent history, it's interesting that uh, two election cycles ago, uh, we were, you know, in the heat of an election campaign and the Syrian refugee crisis was happening as at the backdrop. Now it's front and center what's happening in Afghanistan. What are your thoughts with this? I mean, I share a sentiment with a lot of people in Canada. There has been a lot of questions and criticisms in regards to the timing of the election amid the humanitarian crisis that's happening. But the Canadian government has reassured Canada that their commitments to Afghanistan, particularly the vulnerable population, that's women, girls, and ethnic and religious mi minorities, uh, remain unwavering. So I think it really comes down to, you know, as citizens, I think it's our civil duty to ensure that we go vote in the upcoming elections and make sure we hold our government responsible for the commitment they have made in protecting human rights in Afghanistan and, and ensuring that our commitment to Afghanistan is beyond accepting just 20,000 Afghan refugees, but rather there's a proper plan, a strategy to address the crisis in Afghanistan and protecting the people who are also who also remain in Afghanistan. So that's that, that's something that I would say. And then on the subject of assisting those who are in Afghanistan, uh, I'm wondering for those who wanted to get involved to assist, what can they do? Uh, how about those folks in Canada who, who, who want to do something about what's happening right now? I think there's a lot of opportunities to learn, to make an impact and get involved. First and foremost, I think it's really important to learn about the issue and what's going on. And I think in the age of social media, a lot of complex information gets reduced to, you know, infographics or short videos. So we have to take responsibility and really ensure that the information we get it comes from credible sources. And we always do a fact check when we're circulating posts on socials. That's number one. Number two would be to donate. Uh, many Afghans, like I mentioned before, don't have access to basic necessities that include food, water, and medical supplies. So any amount of donation, if you're able to help, I think would, would be a huge contribution. Uh, some organizations that are trusted by the Afghan community around the world are um, International Development Relief Foundation, IDRF. Another one is Afghan Women's Group. And then of course, Children Without Borders. And then thirdly, I think, you know, many advocacy groups are developing or have developed various initiatives in the past days to bring about change. So please support them by sharing posts, by amplifying their voices, by writing to your MPs and raising awareness. We understand as, you know, as Afghan Canadians, that advocacy takes different forms, uh, so choose what works for you. And on the subject of actually informing yourself, Will and I found this great article, was referred to us by a good friend. We're going to include that on the link in the description of this post so that you can follow it and read it. And that's a good starting point. Go do your research. Make sure to fact check everything you see on the internet, guys. 
I, I want to thank you for taking time in, in the midst of a very, very difficult time for yourself and, and the community and, and all the loved ones that you have that are both here and in Afghanistan. Are there any final thoughts or things you'd like us to share? I know this video will likely be, be viewed by both those who are in Afghanistan trying to get resources on what Canada can do to help and also for those in Canada hopefully policymakers and decision makers who are looking for ways to improve so maybe is there I know it's never easy to sum up something especially when it's in the middle of a crisis but what would you like to say as a final thing? Um, thank you well and Lou well first of all I want to say that this is you know unlike what Biden has said, this is not a civil war. This is not just an Afghan war. This is a global threat to stability and security across nations. So I think as much as it, it is my job as an Afghan Canadian to ensure that we're heard and advocate, I think it's all our responsibility as Canadians to make sure that you, know, you do your part, you raise awareness, you donate in whatever shape or form you can, you can do that. I think that's what we really want from our community at the end of the day to stand by us and make sure that, you know, we don't leave the Afghans and Afghanistan abandoned like we have for the past 40 years. I think this is the time that the world is really waking up. And I think it's our responsibility, our individual and collective responsibility to ensure that we stand by them and make sure that we advocate on their, on, on their behalf. Powerful words. Thank you so much for coming onto our show today, Hadia. Well, I also want to th take my time to thank you, Will and Lou. I've watched some of your podcasts and I'm so incredible, incredibly proud of the work that you guys are doing. I know you're at the forefront at, at the same time, you know, have your own life. So it really goes a long way. And I think we thank you as a Canadian. I thank you. And as an Afghan Canadian, I thank you uh, both for, of course, giving us the platform and, you know, making sure that these issues that are important to Canada and globe actually are heard by everyone. So thank you so much. Appreciate that so much, Adi. Incredible stuff. Well, I learned a lot today during our session with our guests. Both Wahida and Adia had brought to the table a lot of powerful points and uh, very useful information for those who want to contribute in some way, one way or another, in order to continue advocating to, you know, help out in this uh, unfolding humanitarian crisis. If there's one thematic issue that I'd like to under, uh, underscore uh, on both interviews, it's communication. And I think it really boils down to IRCC's court, the balls on their court, uh, so as they say, uh, in a sense that communication is key in terms of providing the specifics of the programs. Us in the immigration law services, uh, for example, you and I have been complaining about how IRCC sometimes are very scant on details when they roll out programs. They're not very uh, helpful in terms of describing what they actually mean when they say, for example, immediate family, as you've highlighted earlier. And I think uh, from the perspective of, let's say, a humanitarian crisis, the lack of communication can literally be deadly. And I think, you know, in the debacle that was the TR to PR pathway, which was just months ago, you would think that they would have learned something from that particular experience. But I guess this is another case of the left hand not talking to the right hand. But I think it's not too late. 
I think IRCC has a lot of wiggle room here in order to actually get out uh, the details of their programs out to advocates, to people like you, myself, uh, to people in the bar, to people in the community organizations through the, the, the appropriate channels so that all the details are actually properly laid out and communication would not be uh, restricted to say, for example, you requiring applicants to have access to internet or Adobe PDF. There has to be something that can be done in this day and age that may not necessarily be technology-based like all the other lines of businesses, but then can still accommodate the you know, evolving needs of this humanitarian crisis. Yeah, definitely. And I think the second takeaway is that you know we all have a role to play. Like This is maybe not a community that prominently shows up on the news every day. And then, you know, like Haya said, we, we have forgotten them, abandoned them as a country, but in their greatest time of need. And, you know, given our work of immigration, we have a direct role to play and we are, you know, knowledge keepers. I, I don't like to think of myself as a gatekeeper, but unfortunately in the roles we play, we, we sometimes are that too. But we are knowledge keepers and we, we, start, we study these programs, you know. So I hope that we can continue to provide advice uh, and continue to fill in the gaps and encourage our government to step up. I know it's in the middle of an election, but this is a very important issue. It's impacting, I know it's impacting my team. Uh, we have uh, an Afghan uh, Canadian member of our team. Uh, I know it's impacting my friends, just like Hadia. And you know, this is a, a great time for us to step in uh, to do what is right. And on that note, Will, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today. And we'll see you at the next episode, guys. Thank you so much.